What's going on, Creation Grounds? I'm your host, Aaron Lloyd, and this is episode 39. 39, y'all. We close to 40 of the Creation Grounds. I just Before I get into our next guest, I just want to encourage you to like, subscribe, share with people who you think will benefit from this, gather value from it, be entertained by it, be encouraged, inspired, and all that. Our next guest is Daniel Carlton, and I met Daniel at the Negro Ensemble Company. We've done a couple shows together. Really solid dude, very artistic, poetic, and I thought it would be great to have him on. In this episode, he talks about using history as your guide for your present work and the power of knowing the black theater canon for a black actor. Um, we talk about his experience in childhood, where he grew up, uh, his performance and his contribution to create and share work with schools, jails, shelters, and where that desire comes from. This concept of yes and, not only in improv, but also in life as a principle and how you can use that. He talks about theater and a lot of history in this in this uh, episode. Um, books, valuable resources uh, for actors, black actors who want to learn more about black playwrights and work that they may have missed and not heard of before and why it might be important to know those those playwrights and those plays. And much, much more. It's a great, great in-depth conversation, a discourse, and discussion. And this is Daniel Carlton. Welcome to another episode of the Creation Grounds. I have brother Daniel Carlton now with me. What's up, Daniel? How you doing, Aaron? Peace, my brother. Peace, peace. Where did you grow up? Uh, that's an interesting question. I started out in Harlem, uh, during the crazy Harlem. And then my family moved upstate to Ithaca, New York. And then we migrated down south in a reverse migration to Texas. So I could say I'm probably a combination of growing up in those three places. Uh, elementary school, New York, middle school, uh, upstate, and then high school and part of middle school in Texas. So you got the north and the south in you. It's pretty cool. Like in Cali? Yeah. Oh, dope. If you, in your, uh, for your experience of childhood, if it could be written by a poet, any poet, um, who would you want to write it and why? Uh, well, if Toni Morrison was around, of course, I would want her to write it because she would make me sound like the most amazing person on the planet. Yeah. Uh, and I would say Langston Hughes, the same thing, if Langston Hughes was around because he'd figure out a way to turn that into sort of a song and a monologue so much to it or even James Baldwin because he would bring some fire uh, and commentary to my story about what it means to be black and always have moving and always having to rediscover and reinvent yourself so those would be the three because they would take three different approaches to it that's dope and who or what has been a huge uh, inspiration or influence on your decision to be an artist Uh, three people Christian Anderson, who is a, what I believe is a Dutch storyteller. I saw a movie with the actor Danny Kaye when I was a kid, and Hans Christian Anderson was about him, and he did a, a thing called Thumbelina, where he was dancing with his thumb and telling stories, and he was going through the countryside telling stories. And so um, I would begin to tell my little brother stories based on that concept, like using different parts of my body and like making my hand like a dragon, <laughs> like my thumb, and like an airplane. So I would say that I would say reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, just book. because it was, I, I just 
was so blown away by the idea of a person who was considered to be like the bottom and how prison and those experiences and his religious um, conversion and his undying love for black people like I just thought whatever I do in life I gotta go that deep into it you know um, and so and then Langston Hughes the poet uh, because he was just he just spoke to me in, in so many ways and he just simplified black life in a way that complicated it and simplified it all at the same time that's beautiful and I know you do a lot of work in schools and jails and shelters what what draws you specifically to that to to work in those environments in schools jails and shelters as an artist uh, a few things one is the power of what performers and compassionate adults and artists and people who sort of came in my path through various points in my life where I could have gone in so many other directions um, as you know I'm sure is that as a, a brown black person male and it's it's same it's it's for women too it's a, it's just a different thing I think today it might have collapsed into all of it but I just felt like there were so many influences coming at me in different ways as I was growing up. And the things that the people who took time to speak to me artistically and brought me like levels of storytelling and stories that spoke to me um, really sort of changed my brain and sort of gave me an alternate path to look at in my brain, you know, when I was being pulled in other directions mm. and contemptuous to things that would be one decision that would have you doing 30 years somewhere, you know? And so I always thought like, as my responsibility as an artist is that I must be here for a reason. And one of those reasons is to bring high level art to people who are used to low level attention. Mm. Or, and so, yeah, that, that's why I would do it. I, I think that there's so much um, education and entertainment and reflection that happens and there's also a um i feel it's my debt you know like i owe all aspects of our culture like my time and attention and whatever abilities i have and i also like to teach people how to tell their own stories you know and so that's what attracts me to it the other thing is that why i do that work is because when you do a commercially sort of theater or you do things that are really involved with you as an actor, you have to be a little bit self-absorbed. You have to go into your own sort of like, I need to focus on me. And I think that that is part of what built your artistry, but it's also the thing you have to be really careful with, mm. you know? And so when you, when you get out of those spaces, like to look at your life as like more than you, because I think you have to have both in order to be a successful artist, you know? Um, so that that's why I'm attracted to to that work also, you know. That's beautiful. It it, it reminds me um of how I got started also on a, a quote by Ali. He says that service is the rent that you pay for for being for having life essentially or some something along those lines. So that that's that's beautiful and deep. I, I love that. And in improv there's this thing called yes and that you've kind of adapted or or used as a model. Uh, for for your own life, explain yes and and what that means to you. 
So in improvisation, as you know, yes and is the philosophy. Well, it's not even philosophy, it's the practice. Because the philosophy is different from a practice. The practice of yes and in improv is that you take the circumstances given to you and you build on those circumstances so that you keep the story alive. Uh, and a real simple example, just in case you have any kids listening, is that if I as the leader say it's raining and then you say no it's not then then everything it's over it it dies yes and is to take that rain and say oh wow i forgot my umbrella so you can still have opposition but you're not saying no to the situation right and i use yes and in my all of my being is that if i say yes and so i say yes to almost everything that has to do with um, building. And then once, if I say yes, I'll say, if I say yes. If I say yes to something, I'm, I'm in. And I'm not just in, I'm gonna build on that thing that I'm in. So that I'm not just a, a passive person in that process, that I'm completely in and active. Which means that I have to be really careful sometimes about um, all the things that I take in because everything is gonna get my attention. And it's going to be that thing sometimes. <laughs> and you know this thing where it's like 3 o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden you wake up because you've had some epiphany about something yep. involved. <laughs> Need your <laughs> notepad. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 I'm learning. I'm learning that you can't take on everything because if you operate out of the principle of yes, everything gets the build, your attention, and it gets collapsed into what is the bigger story that we're trying to tell? And I use that in my life. What is the bigger story that I've had in my life? Not what is the, the what is the uh, beginning? I'm always interested in like, what are all the paths and what are they trying to teach me? So, and teaches me to pay attention um, and to be mindful. So that's what the and. The yes is I'm in. The and is be mindful and see what you can do to help. And you, you mentioned that you use this in your work and life. What, what ways um, in your day-to-day would you say that you use yes and? Besides, I guess I guess you kind of answered it with, with a project. If you get a project, then you say yes and you're just all in and committed. So I, I might have just answered my own question with, <laughs> with that I had for you. But if you have any, any anything to add to that, a yes and for, for, for that. Um, you know, I mean, life for us... I don't want to just say black people, but because right now I'm, I'm really um, focused on projects that in this nowness mm-hmm. of everything, there seems to be this real focus on like, okay, let's let's pay attention to black people now, and I think that that in and of itself can be its own um, reward and it can be its own trap, you know, and so as a person as a black man I think that you have to always look at your life in the organizational aspects of it you know like preparation Um, you have to be prepared and because you have to be prepared within that preparation there's always something that's going to be an improvisation within that preparation for example if I'm walking down the street and suddenly you know I get stopped by the police 
you know, there. If I'm not already in preparation and animal, I can let that whole thing take all the art out of my whole day, life, week, month, whatever, and it can start to have an effect on everybody around me, and it sort of freezes me and, and takes me into an anger space where I'm taking it out with people closest to me. Mm. But if I'm if I'm prepared and I'm already on the end, I'm already thinking like further ahead and I'm thinking of what is it that I have to get back to do you know um, and so even in those moments in, in the moments that challenge us the and in the yes and is also a part of um, I'm prepared and I've thought these things through and I'm not just going to be reactive I'm going to be proactive and so in my life I try to be and I don't mean this to preach I, I just mean it's like some hard lessons I've learned mm-hmm. about being proactive that if I'm operating out of an emotional state because I'm surprised then I'm always going to have like some emotions that I have to strip before I can get back on the path but if I'm prepared for that because we are human beings and we're not, we're not robots right. but if I'm prepared to know that there are emotional um, roadblocks then the end is like okay how do we maneuver through that and so it's I think in almost every aspect of my life from relationships personal to parenting um, I'm raising I have a son who has special needs and so I also have to always you know he's in his 20s but he's probably 12 Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's it's all of that in our personal lives and I, I have to tell you why I lived probably my 20s and Aaron I'm sure you, you <laughs> might be able to relate to this where it's so improvisational without the and that you're just like sort of <laughs> just going through Drifting. it you know and you are you're in situations that if you look back you go oh man like I could have handled that so much differently you know because I'm acting like it's new, you know, like, and I think that's part of your growth process. Yeah. So when I say I'm not preach, I'm not trying to preach. I've just learned that to be proactive, to, um, to have a plan, um, and to proclaim that today is the day that I'm going to get it done, you know, is, is part of, uh, how Yes Sam works in my life. Tell me about a theater piece, uh, that's impacted or resonated or landed with you the most in your life? I'll tell you the first two. And then um, those first two, I guess because whatever you're introduced to sort of like sets the tone. So <laughs> the first thing I was introduced to, when I was a little kid and we moved upstate, you know, there was uh, there were all these young people who were coming, sort of, this is in the 70s, so they were still coming out of that whole black, power thing mm-hmm. and I remember watching a play and it was by uh, Amiri Baraka and The Dutchman I think it was like in the mid it must have been like 76 or something like that cause yeah I was like a little kid and uh all they talked about was black you know like so like the characters come out and it would be different type of people but they would all just say black <laughs> <laughs> just randomly that was the line <laughs> that was the line like, <laughs> That's you know hilarious. In different ways, there were drums and stuff going, and, you know, and I, uh, I don't know, that, that really affected me for some reason, you know. 
Right. And then, or Latin, black and Latin, or black Latin, or brown. It was all brown. Mm -hmm. You know? Like, if you saw a white person in Harlem when I was a little kid, you almost was like, oh man, should somebody go tell them, like, this is Harlem? You know? <laughs> <laughs> mentioned that there was you were in texas they the librarian knew one black playwright besides like kind of the location uh era uh, like where you are we have the internet now so what do you think are the biggest barriers of a black actor knowing more of the black theater canon what do you think are some of those barriers institutions and you do not get introduced to black playwrights 
artists or black designers, you get sort of absorbed into uh, whiteness. And because of that, even it can feel foreign and you're trying to fit yourself into it because you think something's wrong with you. Mm. You know, because like you're really not understanding it. It's almost like the difference between Marvin Gaye and the Beach Boys, right? Right. So, you know, <laughs> That's a big difference, though. <laughs> you, you know, you, you've been hearing Marvin Gaye from your parents all your life. Then you get to school, and, it, and it's the Beach Boys. That's what they've been listening to. And so they are trying to fit you into, like, yeah. that kind of idea. So I think that's part of the barrier. Another part of the barrier is that up until maybe 20 years ago, like, you just didn't have a lot of national attention on black playwrights and black theater, you know? Um, you may have gotten Lorraine Hansberry, possibly. Mm-hmm. No, probably. Because The Raising of the Sun is really big. Yeah. You probably got that. Um, you may have gotten The Wiz, you know, like, you may have seen the movie. Um, you may have gotten a few things, but you didn't get, like, that funk. You didn't get that stuff that was really talking to your, your black self, you so I think that's the biggest barrier is that you then are being taken away from like characters or ideas that are already there and white students have already been in the cultural space where all that stuff makes sense to them and so now you got to make sense while you're navigating whiteness of these things that they're introducing you to so I think that's the biggest barrier in terms of uh, in one aspect the other aspect is that unless you are in a big city, you may not be exposed to seeing any black theater. You know? mm-hmm. um, and so there's that. You know, I think if you live in Chicago, you live in New York, you live in St. Louis, you live in uh, you know Atlanta, Atlanta for sure. Yeah. Right. You're gonna get that. But if you live in uh, some of the smaller, like Omaha, Nebraska, or um, places like that, you may not get any of that. You know, right. you may not even see a play. But if you did, you're not gonna see a commercial with like a black cast on that. You're not gonna be able to stumble into that. You and I, Aaron, could be here in New York. It's like, hey man, you know, I got an extra ticket. You know, come see this play. I don't even know if it's gonna be good, but I gotta come. Right. Now here we are sitting in an all black audience in a black play. You know, getting that going. That's just not, that doesn't happen as much outside of the big cities. So I think there's that. The third thing, I think that there is still like this, um, I don't think it's as deep as it used to be, but I think that in American culture, because of this caste system, mm-hmm. and I do think America's a caste system more than it is a racial system. We can talk about white is a, an American, almost American European like definition. And so, in this white caste system where black is still like presented as something inferior unless it's like you know some entertainer you really dig you know um i think that there's still this idea that white must somehow be better Mm. and so like you're like oh yeah okay i'm gonna i don't know why i'm supposed to read these black people you know um i'm not supposed to learn that i don't want to be stuck in black theater I don't want to be, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think there's that too. I mean, you know, if I'm, I'm just being real about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've struggled so, so long to, 
do my part for the legal ensemble company, which I think is a shame that, you know, like, and I've donated money, I've donated shows, like, everything I can do because I think it's a shame. I think that without the legal ensemble company and without New Federal Theater, that there would not be the level of black celebrity exposure excellence from them getting that as a training ground. And I think there wouldn't be the canon. The other, the uh, the only black theater you were gonna get. There are other black theater companies, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speaking. Those are the big ones, though. Like that. Yes. I mean, New Ensemble yeah, Company has a has a um. They have a, a wall dedicated to them in the African American Museum in DC. Yes. That's the impact that yes. that theater has. New York being like the center of theater. Yeah. You know that they were, but with that, you know, it's like I remember once, man, Aaron kind of a big room and I was saying that I had to go down I had to leave early because I was assistant directing something uh, at the Neil Ensemble Company it's a room full of black actors in a big room mm-hmm. and somebody said they still around wow and I was so I was heated man I was like damn you know like instead of making that like that statement you know like it's like oh wow how can I help what they doing you know it's I was shocked that it turned in that direction. It's like we wouldn't be in this room right now. Right. You know, without that happening. You know? Yeah. Because am I going to wait for the public theater? Am I going to wait for, you know, this one, that one? You know? I mean, a lot of good things comes out of Chicago, too. I don't want to take Chicago out of the picture. Because I think Chicago is the unsung city of black theater, too. Yeah. beautiful what what is what is your favorite part of or favorite moment in history so i know you're very well read um obviously grew up in in like the era of like just enormous pride what what is what is your favorite moment in history that's interesting you say that because i was an anomaly growing up because like by the time like i was really coming of any kind of age you know crack was here Mm-hmm. You know, um, gun violence was here. The gangs were bigger. You know, the weapons more powerful. The prisons were filling up. And I remember, like, people being really annoyed with me, talking about, here he comes with all that black talk, you know. Here he comes with all that black pride, you know. Because, like, those people from the 60s, um, those were my parents, uncles, you know, all that kind of stuff. And... I personally, like, sat at the knee of these people because I wanted to know, you know. But, like, coming up into it in an era of, like, materialism is what I really came into. Like, mm. the real beginning of, like, heavy materialism around that, that quick hustle culture, you know. Um, my favorite moments in history are the times when um, we 
analysis and everything converged like the pride the art the movement and the action and so like one of my favorite moments in history is um the founding of the black panther party you know and everything i've read about that and, and this is how i learned about this when i was a little kid and we moved from harlem i was all over the place man and I had this teacher who, she gave me this book by Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, and I didn't understand it. It had a lot of cursing in it, but she was like a, a hippie, right. you know? And because she was a hippie, like, she didn't even realize, like, I guess, like, that was, she just going to give me something black and mm-hmm. make me believe in myself. And I was reading this book, like, eight, nine, and it was a lot of cursing, but, like, what stuck with me was just how these black men, you know, like, weren't just about guns, but they were about self-defense. Right. They were also about, like, pride and stuff, and I just wasn't seeing that. And so, like, I leaned into that, you know? And and so that probably was one of the moments in history. Another moment, which I have this play um, called March On, which I've written about the March on Washington, um, because I was, my colleague at Blackberry Productions was very upset that the anniversary came and there wasn't a lot of attention. It was the 50th anniversary. And I don't know if I was that like versed in the March on Washington, but she just felt she couldn't write the piece. And so I went, I went and started doing research that just took me so deep into it, watching every episode of Eyes on the Prize, the documentary, right? Um, getting all this footage because I didn't want to put a documentary on stage, you know. And the more I learned about it, the more respect that I had for like 250,000 people who moved to Washington, who came to Washington, D.C. a single day, not knowing they were going to hear the I Have a Dream speech. Right. In one of the bloodiest years for black people, in American history. 1963, Mega Evers was killed. 1963, those girls were killed in the church. 1963, there were bombs all over. 1963 was those iconic pictures. You see the dogs, like, biting people in the water hoses. Mm-hmm. The Birmingham Street. That was all 1963. And I'm looking at the courage of these people, and I said, wow, like, that kind of changed even how I looked at the Civil Rights Movement because a lot of my thinking was about you know, the more, like, black power stuff. And I realized even that. And so that would be now one of my um, favorite moments in history. It was 1963, because a year that was designed to kill all of us, the best in us. You know, Mega Evers was killed in his driveway in front of his kids. You know, know, Mm -hmm. it's like um, John Lewis, you know, they were going to pull the plug on his speech, you know, because... They thought he was going to say something that was going to make the crowd like erupt. Like black people can't make a decision on ourselves. Like we just got spontaneously. And if we did, <laughs> that would have been all right too, you know. Uh, but anyway, I, so that varies a lot because I use history a lot in my work. Yeah, um, a lot. Like I have a piece coming up, um, which is part two of something about um, the 1920s because it's the 100th year of the Harlem uh, Renaissance. Mm -hmm. And so I want to say that my artistic practice is that everything I write historically has to do with black resistance, not black passivity. Because the the main 
culture and these history books will have you believe that black people just took it, right? Right. They won't have. They won't teach you that we made our own businesses, our own plans, that we did have resistance, that we created, that we that a culture that was designed to make us slaves and then had no more use for us. That we build American culture out of that. There's nothing in American culture right now that does not have a root. Nothing creative that doesn't have a root in blackness. And so my work is all about, if I'm dealing with something historical, it's all about, you know, if, if we're going to talk about resistance, if we're going to talk about losing, you know, like, then that means that my last breath was spent, you know, in resistance, you know. And so I, I try to find those moments in history where people really, um, just just on a, another note, I've, I've been looking at this uh, picture meme, and it has really upset me um, about this. There's a, a sign where somebody says, I'm not my ancestors, I'll mess you up. Mm. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen that one, yep. It is so wrong. It's like, you, whoever is teaching you, whoever you got that from, this is why we as artists have to, like, uh, as black people and brown people or any people, why you have to tell your story because a person who thinks that she's saying that as an act of resistance is a person who still doesn't know her history. That's true. That's deep. How has understanding history guided you in your present work? You touched on this with March on. How has it guided you in your present work? So I want to use March on again as an example. So with March on, what happened was this idea of writing a piece about the March on Washington it's like it's so big so what i was doing was getting all these like historical stories is that and then i had a light bulb moment it's like if i asked the people who were there what their experience was i'm going to get a different you know instead of doing all this research like go to the people but what i was interested in in that research is i didn't want it to be a story about when black people got to sing and march to get some rights it's like no nah, i need to find a cross-section of people who had different reasons for going. And these are the people I found. And this opened up the whole thing, right? So I met this uh, Nambi, my partner's father. Mm -hmm. He was 17 when he went. Wow. Now, he, in his life, is, was, is a, has a, a doctorate degree in history, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, he was 17 then coming out of Chicago he had no idea that I mean you know he just wanted to see uh, he wanted to see mountains M mountain <laughs> so like bus trip. oh that's funny <laughs> right <laughs> you know and he thought anything Martin Luther King was gonna say has already been said anyway right? mm -hmm. that was his his thinking then I met a brother who was working like in the Bronx and he was a little older and he was Stephanie Barry's father, um, the great actress. And he went as an older, in his 20s, he was in his 20s, and he just wanted to get, he, he needed to believe, like, in hope. He needed to believe that something was possible, mm -hmm. right? Because he was a little bit older, and so he had dealt with, like, a lot of that North racism, you know, disappointments, dreams deferred. Mm -hmm. Then I met this white woman, and I interviewed her and she was an interesting story she was she had been watching the movement on TV and felt helpless and 
so from Massachusetts, and her friends felt that if she was to go, she better hook up with somebody who was a little bit more hip. So they introduced her to this guy on his bus to ride the bus to Washington. Mm-hmm. They hung out all day. Um, and short story is they fell in love during that march, and they were married for like fifty years. Wow. Before he died. 17-year-old Dom went to the march, complained the whole time, and then all of a sudden it started to click in. Mahalia Jackson sang. That was his mother's favorite singer, right? All of a sudden, he started looking at it bigger than himself. The, um, the, the other guy, Carl, he started, like, becoming part of the crowd. This woman, everybody. So then I said, well, this is amazing, and they didn't know each other, so now i got to have some opposition. So I created two reporters, one, a white who had no idea what he was doing. And so he was going to look at um, chaos. Because that's how when he presented it in all my research, like, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be chaos. Mm-hmm. Then I had a black reporter who was so busy in the field that there was no way that he could even make it to the march because a lot of stuff was still going on, right? And then I put them and then set it all and said, nope, you got to put this music in. And I thought about all the music that black people love that motivated them through these marches, right? Mm-hmm. So suddenly you got the music, and I had to ask people, like, you know, my mother, uh, even people's grandparents, like, what was the sound? What were you doing in 63? What was the sounds? So now I got the music. Now I got these stories. Now I got them from sunup to sundown, and we end on the speech, but we don't completely hear it because it was not about Dr. King. It was about people So yeah. that, that's how like I used history, but history itself is like it's dry because it's already happened, right? Right. And so not only you're gonna get his pictures unless you get the people who had the experiences, you know. Fact. And they're gonna teach you more about that than anybody who's written a book about it, you know. It's true. And so I I apply that to other aspects of my art when I can when it's dealing with history. I try to find sources. And then I try to meet it where it was culturally. And then I ask myself, what was the resistance? Not from, like, the white area, but what was black resistance? Like, you know, yeah. and what, was, what would be, you know, um, and I'll tell you, man, you never know. And then I'll, I'll stop here because I'm caffeinated, so I'm talking. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you another example of how history, you got to be, you know, Benjamin, you've been yeah. educated. Yep. So about six months ago, I got a call from the New York Times, mm-hmm. and they were doing a article on a woman named Pigfoot Mary, who was a Harlem entrepreneur in the 20s. So Benja Kay originally asked me to write a play about Pigfoot Mary because she wanted to play her. And I tried to do some research. I could only find a paragraph, so I had to write a whole piece around this paragraph wow. right? and all the history. And so I made all these characters who at that time would have come in contact with her. Because my thinking was, she would have met everybody because she sold food. She had a, it was like a first food truck, really. Mm-hmm. She sold that on the corner of 135th and Lenox. So I mean, she met everybody, the whole Harlem Renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. And anyway, so within this story, I wrote it, we did it, we toured it for a while. Actually, I gave this show to NEC as one of the touring shows. Uh, and six months ago, I get a call 
from the New York Times to ask if they could interview me about Pigford Mary. And the first question they asked me was, do you have any pictures of her? And I said, no. And I've, I've never seen a picture of her. Mm-hmm. And they said, we haven't either. And so if you do a Google search, mm-hmm. the only picture of Pigford Mary is Benjamin K. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's funny. <laughs> did they did they use her for the article? That's funny. There's no other pictures. <laughs> That's hilarious. And in the article, they asked me questions about like how did you come up with this material? And it was like sometimes you gotta write around it. Right. You gotta just position that character in a space. But yeah, so Google search Pickley Mary and see what comes up. I'm doing that. I'm doing that right after this interview. That's hilarious. <laughs> And I'm a texter too. I'm a texter to picture. And be like, I didn't know you was Pigfoot to Mary. That's oh, funny. Yeah, yeah, got her with a big old uh, tub <laughs> where she put the food in. That's funny. Yeah, so that's how history. Like, I always try to find those spaces, you know, where we can elevate it and we can make it land on like contemporary years. You know, I think that's important too. What What would you say your top five black plays are? Uh, I would say Raising the Sun because it me to it um i would say uh zoom in in the side by charles fuller who as you know also wrote soldiers play mm-hmm. um i would say and i never pronounced this right but i'm gonna get it right Ududu or Odu, uh and it was a play presented by the uh, new Asama company uh it was uh, sort of a in charles our, our great beloved charles walden was in that Mm-hmm. Um, Home by Sam Art Williams. Um, uh, First Breeze of Summer by Leslie Lee. And these are all new ensemble company plays. Yeah. Right? These plays have had a profound effect on me. Now, I, I would also say um, there are moments in some Susan Laurie Parks plays that are very moving. But I don't understand the totality of them sometimes. Mm-hmm. I actually did a Susan Laurie Parks play in South Africa once. Uh, the Venus play, which is about a South African uh, protagonist. Uh, well, protagonist, wrong word. Uh, you know the story, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still on that. You went to South Africa for work. That sounds incredible. Well, That's what not- was interesting, yeah, I've been very fortunate, man. I've probably worked in about, I guess, 32 countries at this point. Wow. So I always consider myself the person who is not like famous or a celebrity, but I think in some ways it's worked in my favor because I've been able to really do a lot of stuff that probably people wouldn't have thought that they could ask me to do if I was like, you know, a celebrity. Like to ask somebody to go to South Africa for four months is like, you're not going to ask Will Smith to do that. Right. Unless it's a movie, you know. Speaking of. Speaking of. Yeah. That project, oh, so the Venus play, this is where I would say Susan Lurie Parks there at moments, because I love what I was doing as the character, the Negro Resurrectionist, but the South African people, they were going, we don't understand this play, and it was supposed to be set. <laughs> In South Africa, that's funny. Um, they, uh, here's a funny story about that, too, is like, I guess we can say it now, because she didn't want us to talk about it then, but the producer was having problems raising money, because we were this grant mm-hmm. and then something happened politically I don't know and Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith's production company paid for us to, to 
so that we could get there. And their whole thing was like, don't use our names. Not because we don't want to support it. It's because we don't want people to like confuse what's going on. Mm. We want this to be about what y'all are doing. And I thought that was really beautiful, you know? That is. What, what would you say the top five black movies are for you? Um, Cooley High. Cooley High is a good one. Yes. Uh, there's a movie called Superfly. I mean, laugh about this, but I love Superfly. It's a good movie. It's, it is a good movie. And it says a lot about, you know, um, those times, right? Uh, I actually love that period, by the way. Like, those so-called black exploitation films. Mm-hmm. I think if you can get past the costumes and you can get past like what you think is like the corny aspects of it, a lot of those movies had strong empowerment themes in them. You know, um, like Trouble Man, which uh, starred uh, Robert Hooks. You mm-hmm. know? Like if you get past all that, so uh, I would say um, the Wiz. Not because I think it's uh, better than the Wizard of Oz, but it was like I loved the, the take on it and I was in Texas so I didn't see the play you know right and so the movie uh, The Wiz uh, Eve's Bayou uh, I loved Eve's Bayou I thought that was like it's a, it's totally a classic cool. yeah it is it was almost like a Toni Morrison novel like come to life you know yeah Yeah, I think so. You said Cooley High. You said The Wiz. You said uh, Eve's Bayou. That's three. You said um, Superfly. That's four. So you might actually... There's one more. One okay, more so I want to use that. Oh, uh, there was a movie, and it was sort of like in this new Jack City kind of like vibe, mm-hmm. but I thought it was way better. It was called Sugar Hill. Did you see that movie? I actually haven't, no. It no. was also with Wesley Snipes. Was it with Wesley Snipes? Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill was an amazing movie about that same kind of um, era, you know, uh, as the New Jack City. Um, I also love, um, what is this, uh, End of Nowhere? Is that the name of it? End of Nowhere. Who's the, uh, who's an actor or director? Uh, End of uh, Nowhere. It, so it's recent. End of nowhere. Yeah. It's a I documentary mean, or a movie? It's a movie. Now, if you guys are about the, a documentary, man, I would. Oh, do the right thing. Oh, yeah, now, yeah. I forget do the right thing and Malcolm X. Yep. I mean, you know, Spike, you can use that list of Spike in there. <laughs> although, I'm mixed about Spike in the movies. I think some of them are brilliant and some of them are like, damn, mm, yeah, you really got over that one. <laughs> Who was Spikes? Yeah. No. Oh man, like be ready, be like fortified, because he went to Katrina right after it happened, mm. and he got the story with that documentary. Wow. Um, if the creek don't rise. I gotta check it out. Yes. Spike, that documentary was everything, man. Wow. Yeah, and and I would say to to your listeners. Like, a lot of the Spike Lee documentaries are excellent. 
four little girls, you know. Mm-hmm. I saw the four little girls one. I saw that one. I saw the four little girls one. Um, I didn't see the Katrina one though. I'll check it out. Um, what book have you gifted the most in the past year? Uh, it's called The Famished Road, and the author is African. His name is Ben Okri. Um, I think it's O K R I. Um, it's a book that it's a really big book, so you really have to invest in it. Mm-hmm. What are you currently working on or desire to work on next? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, I'm working on part two of a piece for Harlem Stage. Uh, the first part was called Check Your Invite, and it's based on Lacey Hughes' um, uh, house party invitations. And part two is I'm going to do it because we're in um, you know, Zoom now or whatever we're going to use. I'm going to do it as a radio play. That's cool. Um, so that's coming up in November. Um, I have a couple of things. I'm working on a project um, also around the Harlem Renaissance um, where I have an answer to art from the Harlem Renaissance and I have poetic uh, responses. Where So I take the piece, I give it a poem from the period, and it's going to be, I think, 70 years of art created by Harlem artists. And that's at Columbia, and so I'm writing the, the poetry for it. Um, so it's like an anthology of poems representing those seven seven years, or or is it just like a seven years, like seven years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So the, the poems would be like performance poems. Mm-hmm. That so, for example, you'll see uh, Aaron Douglas uh, painting, mm-hmm. and I have a poem as the response to that painting. So I'm gonna have a poem that was written during that time, and I'm gonna double respond respond to the poem and respond to the work of art so it'll be like this like I call it triple consciousness like what would a 21st century person how would they and so that'll be um, we're going to film that at the gallery at Columbia at the Eli Wallach gallery and it'll be broadcast wow. and I'm going to also get some young poets and I'm looking for an elder to also um, to participate so that that's that and I have some pieces that are uh, um, for younger audiences that um, I'm working on. One is we're trying to, Nam being my partner, by the way, uh, Native Son by Nami is also one of my favorite plays, mm-hmm. Nami Kelly. Um, so we're also working on a couple of things too, but that we can't announce yet, but um, uh, once the ink is dry, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yeah, and then some wild stuff, like, I am still trying. I don't know what's going to happen, but I 
started working on a, um, a musical about a year ago based on Lacey Hughes and Zora Neale's relationship. And um, I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't want to do it on these Zoom platforms. I just think it has to happen with people because I need amens and childs. Uh uh-uh, you go, girl. Uh-huh. Oh shit! Need that I audience. Need that. You know, I need the actors to hear all that because it's really like, dramatic and juicy, and musical. You know. Yeah. And I oh. want to hear people's hands clapping. You know. I understand. I ask all my guests this: uh, when you think of the word creative, who's the first person that comes to mind for you, and why? Richard Wright. Uh, Richard Wright just automatically comes to me. Um, I think you know this about me, your listeners don't, is that one of my areas besides playwriting, acting, and directing is I also write poetry, but the poetry that I write is really based on... um, I I stumbled into Richard Wright's haiku, like, black boy, native son. I have... If I turned this thing around, you saw all the novels and all the work by Richard Wright just on the bookshelf in front of me, and you'd be like, wow. Right. But I didn't know he wrote haiku and he was writing them because he was uh, dying and he just needed like to write short form. Wow. And I got interested in that. And so every day I write a daily haiku uh, and not just to pay homage to him, but because he taught me about short form. And so when I think about creative, I think about a person who even when they have their last they figure they just figure another way out to just just do it you know that's incredible where where can people connect with you where can people um uh read your works find your works um and just just find everything about you or connect if they want to like if an actor wants to connect or a writer wants to connect to learn where where, uh, where would they connect with you um they go to my website danielcarlton.com now, my website is a little janky, but it's there. Okay. And, and I say it's janky cause it's because I, I really need to declutter it a little bit. Uh, but you, you can. And um, also, just my email, danielcarlton at gmail. Um, I don't always answer stuff right away, but I, I, I can't sleep until I deal with every single email. So just, just be mindful that if you email me, he's going to answer, but it's going to keep up. Wow. Daniel Carlton, it's been a pleasure, man.